Well, howdy. howdy. My name is Kevin Barra. I'm the college pastor over at our Southwood campus, and we are continuing in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, we are in the last chapter of Matthew. So Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to read a little bit for us, pray for us one more time, and dive in. You all ready for that? Are you all ready for that? Okay, good. Now I, now I can get going. This is going to be awesome. All right. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 1. As you're flipping there, I'll give you a little bit of uh, background about me. Uh, my name is Kevin, once again. I have a beautiful wife named Hillary. We have four amazing kids, a six-year-old daughter named Peyton, a five-year-old son named Micah, a three-year-old son named Jesse, and an 18-month-old daughter named Juliet. Uh, we call her Juliet because that's how they all pronounce her name. And uh, it is absolutely awesome. Yesterday... It was, uh, the cool front blew in a little bit. It was still warm, but a little bit. We had a water balloon fight and played in the sprinkler outside. So that's a little bit about my world. Um, so lots of fun. So Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 1. says this, Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They passed out. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. As he has said, Come see the place where he, where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. So there you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed and quick, quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings, cameo appearance by Jesus. Hey, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let me pray for us one more time. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for the amazing reality of the resurrection, that you rose from death and lived a new life, that we might also live a new life in you. Lord, I pray that you would guide our hearts and guide our words, guide my words as we speak. And hear me pray. Amen. Amen. Well, have you ever known something to be too good to be true? When I was uh, about a, a kid, one of my favorite movies was the movie Hook. Um, familiar? Um, and it's basically the story of Peter Pan. Now, the, the twist in the movie is this, that Peter Pan was all grown up, played by Robin Williams. And, and he was all grown up, and he had forgotten his past. He'd forgotten where he'd come from. He'd forgotten the, the things, the adventures that he had done. He'd forgotten that he could fly and fight and crow, right? He'd forgotten all those pieces. And in this point in his, in his life, he brought his kids to visit Granny Wendy, right? And he comes over to London, the, and, and Granny Wendy's sitting there uh, reading the story of Peter Pan to his kids. And as she's reading the story, he, he kind of shoves it off saying, those things aren't real. And then in this classic moment in the movie, Wendy looks at Peter and says, but the stories, they're true. They're true, Peter. And there was something that he had forgotten. He had been part of a great adventure. He had been part of a great epic story, but... But through life, he had forgotten the pieces that he was supposed to be a part of. Let me ask you, 
What if all the great stories that you have ever heard, all the great dreams you had ever longed for, were hints of something greater that was coming? What if every great story, what if every great movie, what if every great hope that you had was simply a hint of what God was ultimately bringing at the end of all things? What if that was true? But I tell you what, you grow up, and I grew up, and, and, and those ideas, those aspirations of great things get lost in the mix of reality. I remember when I was 13 years old, uh, I believed that the Bible at that point in time was a myth, mythology. I believed at 13, I was in seventh grade, that the Bible was basically made up by monks in the hopes that people would live a good life. That they'd be nice people, and so a bunch of monks sat in a cave, scribbled down this thing in hopes that people would just be moral and helpful and nice. And it wasn't until I got to college that I started investigating the Bible more seriously. That I wanted to figure out, is this real? Is this story that seems too good to be true just that, or is it something more? Is there actually legitimacy to this work? And I'll tell you what, there is. And in my time in college, I realized this. There's something for your mind in the scripture. There's something for your heart. And there's something that will change your life. And the root of this entire faith comes into into climax at one moment in history. And it's the moment of the resurrection. You see, at this time in history, uh, we're, we're looking at, there was lots of messianic figures in the early first century There was people that rose up in prominence and and declared themselves to be the next leader of these people. And all those men are forgotten in history. They're dead. When they died, they were done. But not so with Jesus. This man lived three years in the public spotlight, and the world has been shaken by that life. In fact, we are not the same based on the three years this man lived in the public spotlight. He changed everything. One commentator writes it this way. Were it not for his resurrection, Jesus of Nazareth might have appeared as no more than in the line of Josephus' antiquities of the Jews, if he were even mentioned at all. You see, Jesus' life was significant, but more than his life, his resurrection does something for us, and we got to deal with it. His resurrection confronts the mind, comforts the heart, and will change your life. And the first thing we see is that the resurrection first confronts our mind. In verse 1, it says this Now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. What's significant is this that that an angel comes down and there's a guard uh, guarding the tomb. They were afraid that, that disciples would literally come steal the body and take the body away and, and show that, that he had been resurrected. In fact, Jesus predicted his resurrection several times all through the Gospel of Matthew, but recorded in every Gospel. He tells them, boys, don't worry. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise. It's going to happen. And this story had propagated, and so they set a guard to make sure that, that no one would steal the body and perpetuate this myth And so there's a guard there, and then suddenly God intervenes. An angel comes down, rolls back the stone, and and the guards are terrified of this moment, and they literally become like dead men. Now, I'd say one objection to the resurrection is this. 
that wasn't the resurrection just propagated by ambitious followers? I mean, wasn't the resurrection just like a couple guys couldn't believe that their Messiah had died? And so they were basically ambitious and they just wanted to say, hey, he, he actually uh, just rose from the dead. He's, he's not here anymore. In fact, that's a story that's propagated in this section. But actually, that's not true. First of all, I would tell you to look at, the, look at their actions and then look at the women. First, I'll tell you to look at their actions. Where are the disciples in this moment? His 11 men that were still faithful. They're scattered. They're nowhere. Which is shocking. It should shock you. Because several times, all through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells them, hey guys, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise. Matthew 12 says it this way. He says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so you shall see the Son of Man three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. By the way, boys, I'm going to rise. Matthew 16, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, I'm raising from the dead. Spoiler alert, this whole thing's going to play out. Matthew 20, and Jesus going to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples along the way and said to them, just in case you're confused, behold, we're going to Jerusalem and the son of man shall be betrayed and the chief priests, and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. But don't freak out. On the third day, I'll rise again. Matthew 26, right? And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. But after that, I will be raised. I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Don't freak out, boys. This death is all part of the plan. And he told them throughout his entire life, guys, this is what's going to happen. And you don't see one of these male disciples at the tomb. Now, if you were wanting to make up your own religion, you're bored on a Saturday, right? How would you paint yourself if you were making up your own faith? You would probably paint yourself as the hero of making good decisions, not oblivious to the teachings of your, of your leader. But these men paint themselves as complete morons. Why? Because it actually happened. In fact, these women that are coming to the tomb, as other gospels um, shed light on this, they, they show they're not expecting a risen Jesus. In fact, in Mark, it records they're bringing spices to, to the body. See, they had to bury the body quickly. Um, Joseph of Arimathea took down the body, put it into one of his tombs, and they didn't have uh, time to, to do all the burial rites. And so one of the things that they needed to do was to put spices in the, t- in the tomb over the body. Why? Because it was just supposed to offset the smell of a decomposing body. No one was expecting a risen Jesus. This was shocking. And when the women arrived suddenly they see this whole event as surprising. It's terrifying to them. And the second thing you do is not only look at the followers, you look at the women. You see, at that time, in that culture, a woman's testimony wasn't admissible into the court of law. In fact, if a woman had seen something, literally their testimony was not admissible in public courts, especially in the Jewish system. And so if you're making this up, the last thing you're going to do is stick women there because they weren't to be trusted in their day and age. Now, the Bible is actually very affirming of women all throughout it, but in their culture, it wasn't, they weren't seen in a high light. In fact, um, Celsus, a Greek philosopher, early after in the, first, in the second century, would say this. He would argue against Christians about their faith, 
And he would say this, Christianity can't be true because of the written accounts of the resurrection and based on the testimony of women. And we all know that women are hysterical. And that was a, that was a, a death blow to their argument. They're like, you know, women are crazy. We're not going to believe them. And, and, and that hurt them, but it helps us. Because there's no way you would make it up. There's no way you would write this in the story unless it actually happened. So these people are just reporting, this is where we were idiots. This is who first went there faithfully to to minister to the body. It wasn't made up. The resurrection wasn't about ambitious followers. We all abandoned Jesus. But a second argument against the resurrection would be this. The people of that time embraced mythical explanations for everything. I mean, during that time, didn't they just embrace, you know, if any issue came forward, they'd be like, I don't know who did that. Maybe it was the tree fairies. You know, they, they made up something to believe. They, they believed in any mythical explanation for life. But, but read the text. They are shocked when they see an angel. See, if everyone was seeing angels all the time, they would have been freaking out. But they see this man in white He rolls back the stone and talks to them, and they are terrified. He has to tell them, calm down, calm down, because they weren't weren't ready for this. They weren't exposed to this. And the way this is written, I don't know if you notice this, the way this is written isn't like mythical literature in their day and age. It's written like a report. It's written like historical events. And the way you can see that is you look at Matthew and look at all the names that are listed. He talks about Simon of Cyrene, who helped carry the cross of Jesus. Why would you list him by name? In fact, in Mark, it says it this way, Simon of Cyrene, father of Alexander and Rufus. And if you're reading through the Gospels and you come to that point, you know, father of Alexander and Rufus, you're going to go, fun? Like, I don't know. Why include those names? Because likely in that church, Alexander and Rufus were a part of it. And they would say, wait a minute, Simon of Cyrene, father of Alexander and Rufus? Rufus, your dad was in the Bible? That's amazing. And so suddenly they would realize that these people can authenticate these events. They put in the names of Mary and the other Mary. Why? So you could go talk with them. Richard Bachman, a a theologian and scholar, writes it this way. The repeated names of the women here are sources of citations. We call them footnotes. These women must have been alive at the time of the writing. Or he wouldn't have cited their names repeatedly. By including their names, Mark was saying to anyone reading this document, if, if, you, if you want to check out the truth of the story, go to these women. They're still alive. See, Paul argues the same way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul argues this way. He appeared first to, to the apostles, to Peter. And then he appeared to over 500 people at the same time. Now, every theologian, even liberal scholars, hold that 1 Corinthians was written authentically by Paul and was written within 20 years of it. And Paul is saying this. If you don't believe he actually appeared, go look at one of the 500 people that literally saw the risen Jesus. He says, don't just take my word for it. Go look at over 500 people to authenticate this message. See, that's how the Bible argues. And C.S. Lewis writes it this way. C.S. Lewis was a, um, a scholar of medieval literature. And he was a non-believer, but he started investigating these things to see if it was true. And he, he says this. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, and vis- vision literature, and legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. 
I know that none of them are like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown writer in the second century, without known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modernistic, novelistic, realistic narrative. If it is untrue, it must be narrative of that kind. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. Now, he's a little condescending there at the end of it. You know, you get the professor vibe coming from him. But what's his point? His point is, look, I read myth and mythology. I look at those forms of literature. They're not written like historical narrative. And the way we read fiction, is, it's, it's like realistic. So if you read, I don't know, twi- the Twilight books or whatever book that you like, right? And you read those mythical stories, it's written like they could happen. It's written like they're actual events that could play out. But that's a modern rendition of literature. Back then, they had very clear distinctions between what was considered history and mythology. And the, the writings of the scripture line up more with history, not mythology. And C.S. Lewis is saying, look, if you can't see this, you're not reading it. These people are recording these events like they actually happened. He's writing himself to make it vulnerable. If you're making something up, you don't tether your truths to history. You keep it in the metaphysical, you keep it in the metaphorical. You don't root your truths to something that's verifiable. But that's exactly what Matthew does. Go talk to these people and see if this is actually true. You see, the, the Bible has something for your mind. The resurrection confronts your mind. But not only that, the resurrection can comfort your heart. You see, I think there's some of us that have objections that are, that are mental from believing in the resurrection. I think some, for some of us, it's, it's, it's I'm not sure that I can get there mentally. But for others of you, it's emotionally. You think that the that God, that Jesus, ultimately doesn't want you. And you say it this way. Jesus wouldn't want me. If he knew what I did, if you knew what I did, you would know why. I haven't been to church. I haven't lived a good life. I've made a mess of everything. And you say those types of phrases like, like God wouldn't want me because of me. I remember when I was uh, doing youth ministry, I went and, and spoke at a FCA meeting in, uh, at one of the junior highs here in town. And there was a teacher there that was greeting me, walking me in, and, and setting it up as I was going to speak at that, at that kid meeting. And we're kind of talking. She says to me, yeah, yeah, I used to go to church all the time. But then I got pregnant in high school. And I haven't been back since. And I figure that once I get my life back together, then I can go. And I heard her say that, and I, my heart sank. Because I said, you're missing the truths of the gospel. The gospel is this, we've all blown it, but there's a rescue that's come to bring us back. He says it this way in this chapter, Matthew chapter 28, verse 7, it says this, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. In Mark, it records it this way, But go, tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. Why does the angel tell him that? Why does he tell these women, go tell the disciples, tell Peter, tell all these people that that we're not done, there's more to do. Why does he include that in here? Because there's every reason to believe that these people think, God doesn't want me anymore. We had our shot. 
We walked with him as he performed all of these miracles. God doesn't want me anymore. And who more so than Peter? I mean, Peter had such bravado, right? I mean, when, when all the guys were, were saying, like, who do the people say that I am? Jesus, or Peter steps up and goes, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus goes, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. You know, when they say the full name, you know it's significant, right? Like, Kevin Andrew, you know that's true. You know, it's, it's something that rises up in you, unless it's fear, you know? Like, it's, you know, unless they're yelling your name, like, what have you done, Kevin Andrew? You know, to this day, if I hear my middle name, I know I'm either afraid or very excited about what's happening, right? And he calls him Simon Bar-Jonah. Blessed are you. And then a little bit later on, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus tells them, hey, look, guys, they're going to strike me, and you're going to scatter. And Peter goes, these hosers might, right, these little punks, but not me. I'm Peter. I'm the rock. And at one point, he takes the sword to swing at a guy's He only catches his low. But, I mean, the point is, like, he's excited about Jesus and about this mission, about what he gets to be a part of. But when Jesus is taken away, Peter walks over and tries to follow. And he's there by a, by a charcoal fire, and then a little girl walks up. And says, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And he says, I don't know what you're talking about, little girl. And another girl walks up and says, no, no, I, I recognize your accent. You're, you're one of his men. He says, no, it's not me. And then a third person walks up and says, no, I think you're one of the disciples. And it says that he calls down a curse, likely even cursing Jesus, saying, I'm not one of him. And the Gospel of Luke declares that as soon as he denied him the third time, he looks over and he catches Jesus' eye. And it says he wept and he ran. You see, if anyone had a moment to say, Jesus doesn't want me because of what I've done, it's Peter, who had been so close, yet completely abandoned him. And you may feel that way. You may feel like, God, if I would have lived up a good enough life, then I, can, then I can walk with you. Once I get my life all back together, I'll start dedicating more of my time to you. But that's the opposite of the gospel. Jesus comes to those in their weakest moments and says, I'm here to step in for you. He comes to people in their lowest places and says, I'm grabbing you out and saving you and bring you to me. There was a moment when I was in, high, in college, actually, that this picture solidified in my mind. That Jesus reaches into those that are in the worst and pulls them to save them. I grew up and I always drew, uh, drove bad cars when I was growing up. Um, thank you, Dad. And, uh, and my cars would randomly, at random moments, decide, today's your day, buddy, and would turn off. In random moments, sometimes it would be in parking lots, sometimes in the middle of freeways. So there was one moment I'm driving on I-10 from Houston to Katy, and it's right around 5 o'clock traffic, and I'm going 70 miles an hour in the left-hand lane, trying to go home, and suddenly my car goes, today's the day, buddy. And literally, it turns off. And I'm literally trying to start the car as it's coasting to a stop in the left-hand lane of 5 o'clock traffic. And then I'm like, okay, this is horrible. And then I throw on my signal to try to get over. And you know Houston drivers are always so courteous and understanding in moments like this, right? Negative. They're swerving around me, flicking me off. And and I'm literally coasting to a stop in the left-hand lane, just mad at everyone. Like I'm mad at Houston as an institution. I'm mad at the road. I'm mad at my car. I'm I'm mad at everyone. And I coast to a stop. And I'm like... This is it. I'm going to die. 
And then suddenly I see Nancy Cowan drive by. Now, you don't know Nancy Cowan, uh, but she was a mom in the youth group I grew up in. And she pulls over and she says, what's going on, Kevin? I'm like, just hanging out, you know. And, and she goes, what can I do? And I said, well, she's like, you want to try to jump the car? And I said, sure. And so I don't know how she did it, but she turned her car around in traffic and faced mine. We popped the hoods. We jumped the car. It starts. Hallelujah. We turn her car back around. She pulls over across the three lanes. I get back to my car, and it's dead. She looks over at me. She's like, what's going on? I'm like, it's dead. I'm dead. We're all dead. And she says, okay. And she steps into the middle of the freeway and just says, no. I mean, it was like Gandalf, like in Mount Doom. It was like, boom, none shall pass. Like, I don't know how she did it. She just, no. And then, I kid you not, three semis screeched to a stop in front of her, the force of her will. You know, I don't know how she did it. And she goes, go ahead. And by that time, someone else had stopped over. We push our car, my car across three lanes. And then she just says, now you may go, you know. And I'm looking at this going like, Nancy Cowan, that was incredible. I was lost. I was dead. And you stepped in to save me. And that's what Christ did for you. When you were at your worst, he stepped in and gave his best. And he didn't do it at the risk of his life. He did it at the cost of his life. He stepped in front of the train that was coming, the the wrath of God that we deserve. And he says, I'll take that to save you. And when you blow it, I cover it. When you've made a mess, I'm drawing you in to bring you new life. And I don't dwell on the defeats. I celebrate the steps. I've got little kids. And we... If you have a parent, if you got little kids, there's always that fun moment when, when those kids start learning to walk, right? And there's always this inevitable moment when they, they get up, they got a couple steps, and then they just fall over. And what do you do in that moment if you're a dad or a mom? Stupid kid, they're never going to get it, right? Do you do that? No, that would be horrible. We'd call CPS on you. That would be bad, right? But you love that kid. You want the best for your kid. You don't dwell on the defeats. You celebrate the steps, You've blown it. We'll come back. Let's help you again. That's exactly what we see with the Jesus does here. He says, go tell the disciples. Go tell Peter. We're coming together, and we're going to do this again. Let's go on a great mission. And he tells the ladies, go. Tell them. Meet me here. There's a great story you get to be a part of. We're not done yet. And it says that the women ran away, and they were, they were terrified And they had great joy in verse 8. They were terrified and had great joy. Because there's something here that challenges our life. There's something here that challenges our life. Verse 8 says it this way. So they departed quickly from the tomb for fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. Isn't that significant? They saw the risen Jesus and they start running. Why? Why? Because this is a great story. And they wanted to be part of one of the greatest stories that we've ever seen happen. The guy that we thought was dead rose in victory. J.R. Tolkien, um, in his essay on fairy stories, says it this way. We see people that want to live for something great. And there's a reason why, why fairy stories will never go out of style. 
In fact, there was a belief for a while that, that mythical stories, fairy stories, fantasy fiction would go out of style. In fact, in the 20th century, we saw a rise in this kind of dystopian literature, this, this dystopian fiction, in fact, where everyone lives um, a horrible life and lives and dies tragically. I was reading a CNN article and it said it this way, all too often the Oscars come around and you'll overhear someone at coffee or a restaurant or in a waiting room saying, I've barely heard of any of these movies. Does anyone actually see them? Because as you watch the Oscars, there's all these like horrible movies that always end in tragedy, but they aren't the ones that make the money. What are the movies that make the money? It's movies like The Avengers, right? It's movies like that sh- capture this hero that overcomes impossible odds. And J.R.L. Tolkien writing says this way, we want to see people communicate with non-human beings. We want to see good triumph over evil. We want to see people escape death, step outside of time altogether. And I tell you what, if the resurrection is true, that's exactly what we see. We get to communicate with non-human beings, with the God of the universe and the beings that he's created. We get to see good triumph over evil. We get to escape death, and we get to live forever if this story is true. And that's what Mark has been writing, or Matthew has been writing throughout this entire gospel. You see, we see Jesus calm the storm in chapter 8. And it says, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and waves obey him? What sort of man can control nature? When you see Jesus heal the paralytic in Matthew chapter 9, it says this, When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. In Matthew chapter 14, we see Jesus literally walk on water, and they said, For they they saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Every one of these pictures of miraculous moments are not to point to a significant man, but to point to the God-man. Jesus who stepped into history to free us of our sin and fix everything that was broken. And to these women, he says, you've got to go tell everyone about this man who changed everything. Do you know that? And have you done that? See, there's a challenge here at the end of this text. There's a challenge that he's shaping for all of us. Will you go and will you speak? I remember when I was in, uh, in college, there was a guy in one of my classes, and he was the guy that, uh, that never went to class, never took notes, and at the end of the semester, during finals, he wanted to get all of our notes and all of our ideas to help him for the final. And we're sitting there studying at a coffee shop one time, and I find out later on that he's a, he's a Jewish guy. And as we're sitting there studying, I'm going... Gosh, this guy, this guy, he's that guy, right? And, I, and at the end of it, we end up having a, an amazing conversation about Jesus and about the Bible. And he's like, man, I have a lot of questions about that. Here's my number. Call me, and I'd love to get together and talk more about that. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Take the final, and I don't see him. A year later, I'm walking down the street, and he sees me across about three lanes of traffic. And he says, Kevin! He's there walking with his friend. And he says, hey, Kevin, Kevin. He remembers my name. I don't remember his name. I still don't. And he runs across the street to grab me. And he goes, Kevin, uh, hey, this is my buddy, other Jewish guy. We're both in law school now, and we're reading the book of Isaiah. And we have some questions about the suffering servant. Will you answer them? And I'm like, sure. Sure. And so they bring their little Jewish Bible, and, and I start 
reading it and saying, this is pointing to Jesus. This is what this is about. And he gives me his number again, second time. Saying, hey, call me. I'd love to talk more about this. Okay, okay. I brush him off. I never call him. A year later, I'm in a meeting with a bunch of Christians that are trying to do outreach ministry to different areas on campus. And there were in that meeting, all Christians and in walks, Jewish guy. And I look over at him and I'm like, Christians, you, what are you doing here? And he goes, I came to Christ six months ago. You blew it. And I was like, okay. And, and we went through with the meeting and I caught him after the meeting. And I said, what happened? He goes, man, I had all these questions about Jesus. All these questions about what he'd done. And, and you didn't answer them for me. And so finally God sent someone in my life and, and he answered them. And I cre- came to Christ six months ago and I want to reach Jewish law students with the gospel. And I'm like, idiot. He just needed someone to speak. And he would respond. I've taken that to heart. In fact, in my neighborhood, in Castlegate 2, there is no one that is safe from the gospel. And we are building relationships. We are inviting kids over. We are having random parties and hangouts because I want these families and these kids to know Jesus. Do you? They need it. And they'd be so willing to respond if we would just simply speak. In fact, what's happening here is Really an ending to my favorite movie, The NeverEnding Story. So when I was a kid, there was a movie that came out called The NeverEnding Story. Any fans? And it's a great movie, if you're not familiar with it. It's, it's the story of a kid who loved to read. He was a learner. And he goes into this old bookstore and goes to this old man. And the old man's sitting there, and he's like, what do you want, kid? And the kid goes, well, what are you reading? And he goes, well, I'm, I'm reading a book, but you wouldn't like it. And the kid's like, what are you talking about? I love to read. Robinson Crusoe, Swiss Family Robinson. Like, I love to read. I love all sorts of books. And he goes, yeah, you, you like those books? Those books are safe. This book is dangerous. Then suddenly he gets a phone call and goes to the back, to the office to answer the phone. And the kid does what any 12-year-old kid would do. He snags the book, stuffs it in his bag, and runs to school, right? So he jacks the book, and he runs, and he gets to school, and he goes to like some weird, creepy basement attic area of, of his, I don't, I don't know where he went, but, but he's there like reading this book, and it's called The Neverending Story. And it's a story about a land, a beautiful land, that is, that is being attacked by a darkness, a nothingness, and it's pervading everything. And there comes a moment at the end of the movie when, when darkness is covering the entire land, that everyone is screaming, will someone speak the name? Someone has to n- speak the name, and it will fix everything that is breaking. If someone would just yell the name, it would bring peace to all of this land that is going broken. Will someone just speak? And in that moment, all the characters look up. At that moment, the kid drops the book and freaks out because he realizes this book isn't safe. This book is calling me to engage. And it's the same with this book. If you will speak the name of Jesus, people's lives can be changed. If you will be part of the great story that he is weaving, we can do great things in this community. Creekside, Grace Bible Church Creekside can make an incredible impact in this community, in Pebble Creek and beyond, if we would just speak the name that is above every name, that can change everything. Do you believe it? Tim Keller writes this, the gospel is the ultimate story that shows that victory comes out of defeat. 
strength that comes out of weakness, life coming out of death, rescue from abandonment. And because it is a true story, it gives us hope because we know life is really like that. You've got the best news this world's ever seen. People need this Jesus. It confronts your mind. It comforts your heart. And it'll change your life if you let it. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you for the gospel. (laughs) The good news that Jesus, that you came and lived the life we could not live. That you died the death we deserve to die. And you rose in victory over everything to free us and unite us to be on your mission in the world. I pray that we might take that to heart. And we might live lives radically displaying your grace in this world. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great morning.